Good morning and welcome to our Sycamore Township workshop meeting for Tuesday, April 14th, 2020. The time is 9.02. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we are following House Bill 197. This allows local government the opportunity to conduct business meetings remotely and uh, at the same time comply with the uh, stay at home and social distancing recommendations. Now, as I mentioned, the, the last meeting due to the electronic format of the meeting, there will be no in-person comments. However, members of the public may submit concerns, any questions prior to the meeting to Ray Warwick, our administrator. You'll find a link to those live streams, trustee meetings on our website, tape videos or of our meetings are also available on the website. And we hope that you're staying safe, healthy, because together we're gonna get through this. Fiscal Officer, Rob Porter, would you call the roll? Uh, Mr. LaBarbera. Here. Mr. James. Here. Mr. Weedman. Mr. Weedman. You're muted, I think. Or your audio is very low. How about that? There we go. Perfect. Oh, that's good. That sounds good. Um, now I have to ask Mr. James, Mr. Weedman, Mr. Porter, Law Director Deepak Desai, do you give your authorization for your name to be signed electronically? And I'll also give my okay. Gentlemen? I do. I do. I do. Okay. I'll make a motion to approve the April 2nd meeting minutes. Do we have a second? Second. Any discussion? Mr. LaBarbera? Yes, yay. Mr. James? Aye. Mr. Weedman? Fiscal officer, Mr. Porter, do you have the bills? And I, didn't, I didn't hear a response from Tom. Did Tom respond? Tom? Weedman? Aye. There it is. Aye. Okay. Got it. I got there it. You. Okay. Thank you. Okay, uh, Rob, Rob Porter, fiscal officer, do you have the bills and receipts? Yes, we had receipts of $10,328,305.76, disbursements of $289,530.74. A complete listing of all receipts and disbursements should be available in your packet. Thank Motion you. Motion to approve. Second. Just a quick question, um, Mr. Porter, does that include the first six months of tax payments from the auditor for this year? Is that the, with the big that, dollar? That 10, that 10 million is, um, most of that is from the, uh, uh, you'll see it on the list there. It's from Dusty Roads payment of the tax, uh, real estate tax. Now, it, not all 10 million is going to end up in our, uh, uh, in our funds. We pay approximately half of that to the school districts on on the TIF payments. So, uh, but we haven't made that distribution yet. So that's why it's the full 10 million in there now. Okay, thank you. Um, Mr. LaBarbera? Aye. Mr. James? Aye. Mr. Weedman? Aye. Sheriff's report, Lieutenant Smith uh, had an emergency, will not be here. Uh, apparently a house emergency with uh, flooding in the basement, six inches of water. 
but I did want to publicly thank him and our Hammond County Sheriff's officers uh, recently escorted by uh, our Baltimore uh, Township Fire Department. They donated 50 pizzas to Jewish hospitals, healthcare workers on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. I stopped by the firehouse to thank uh, the gentleman on behalf of our trustees. And uh, I know our administrator, Ray Warwick, stopped by also. And again, thank you, uh, Lieutenant Smith and Sheriff Jim Neal. All right, Sycamore Township Fire Chief Penny uh, with the fire EMS report. Uh, you're on the front line. Uh, how's the team doing? Good. Can you guys hear me okay? Yes. Yes, we yes. can. Okay. I want to mention, too, the safety services team with the, you guys working with the uh, sheriff's department that day, giving out the pizzas. Uh, the residents should know that the Sycamore Township Fire Department, in, uh, in cooperation with him, the county sheriff's office, you're offering the happy birthday drive-bys. Is that right? For the youngsters? and you Yeah. With uh, Assistant Chief Cooper on that? That's yeah, Jerry, Jerry's been heading that up. He's been doing a really good job at that. We've, and we've had quite a response. Chief, what do you have for us? Um, just kind of give you an update on some of the, with the COVID stuff. Um, we've had 16 runs so far um, where we've had the criteria based uh, that, the, that the patients have fit the uh, criteria for the COVID. We did have one confirmed case and uh, looks like right now we've got about eight cases that are in the township that are being quarantined in their house. So um, we have that information. If we get a run to their area um, or to their house, we'll know about it ahead of time. We, uh, our guys have been doing a great job at following the, the PPE protocol and the SOPs that we have in place. Everybody's been very safe and uh, we've not had any problems with our guys coming down with any symptoms or anything like that. So. Uh, so far, we've been doing very well, and um, uh, thanks to Trustee Wiedemann, he was able to uh, point us toward the direction of some gowns uh, through the uh, EMA, I believe it was, and we were able to pick up 100 gowns from them. So uh, we, we, got, we got some gowns. We've got uh, some EMS supplies have started coming in. We've got the thermometer covers and some, and some uh, masks. So we're, we're in pretty good shape right now as far as the supplies. And um, we got more stuff still coming in. So uh, right now we're doing pretty good with this, uh, with this part of it. Um, as you guys all know, we had quite a little storm come through the other night. And uh, we, we had some significant damage with some houses in the township. And I believe I sent you guys the pictures of those. And... Um, the guys went out the next day and tarped some roofs and tried to do a little public service to help the residents out. And um, so hopefully those will be over with and these uh, people that had some damage to their house will uh, get back on their feet. If, they, if anybody needs any help from us, we'd be more than happy to help them as best we can. So, and I, as you said, the, uh, uh, the birthday party has been going well. The only thing else I have to report is that so far this, uh, with this COVID thing, we're, our uh, cost is, is just a little over $22,000 that we're going to be able to uh, put in as a reimbursement for um, 
uh, the expenses that we've done on EMS supplies and all the equipment. Uh, the guys went out uh, last the other day and bought uh, some of those Wagner airless sprayers, those paint sprayers, and those things work great to mix with alcohol and water and spray down the inside of the squads and disinfect everything. So uh, we, we purchased those, not that expensive, but they work like a charm. So we're doing everything we can to keep ourselves safe and to keep everything disinfected and uh, be ready for the next run. Chief, so that's all. Thank you, uh, any, any questions? Yeah, Chief, how are you, how is your supply of alcohol? Um, we're not too bad because the, um, We've got the we've got some stuff that came in through our EMS supplies, and okay. also all these flu kits we have all have uh, some some alcohol stuff in it too. So, and I I got you guys you guys can look right here. I've got eight cases sitting in my office. So, <clears throat> I think we're I think unless we get another big outbreak that causes the problem, I think we're going to be okay. Okay, good. Comment comments, Tom James. Uh, Chief, if there's anything you need, don't hesitate to let us know. I know you will. Thanks for keeping us informed on what went on on uh, Chetford and the surrounding area with the damage there the other day. Is, is there anything more needed over there that you know of or that Tracy and his crew might need to get on as to cleaning up brush there from that? I know Tracy and the crew went over there the day after the storm and uh, did a lot of uh, tree removal and some trying to get the roads cleaned up and that sort of thing. Um, so we were kind of coordinate things with them. So that, that was doing fine. I don't think of anything. I'll, I'll uh, turn it over to Jerry and see if he has anything that can add to it. But uh, as far as I know, I think we're okay. Yeah, I was down there the day after. Um, it was real hard to try to evaluate everything that night. Um, <clears throat> just a rough number going through uh, my pictures and the walkthrough that, that you guys have seen those uh, chief forwarded to you. But we had about 11 homes that were that were damaged and probably nine of those were significant um, with the large trees down and stuff. So um, we, we were lucky that night. We didn't have any injuries, but but some of the damage was uh, extensive. Um, and I want to take this this time to remind everybody um, not to take the severe weather season lightly. Um, so I'm able to share my screen here. Um, if they go, our residents go to our website, um, if they scroll down here a little bit on the homepage, there's a link here that you can, uh, go through Hamilton County alert. And then also the smart 911, you can sign up for weather alerts and any other emergencies that might come through Hamilton County. Um, so all you got to do is just click right here and that will uh, take you to the, the link and the page for you to sign up for that. Um, it works pretty good. I, I have it signed up for, for myself here at the address of the fire station. And as soon as those warnings came through, my phone was going off for every warning um, with the address that I had entered. So so if anybody wants to take the time, I highly suggest you sign up for that stuff. And then the SMART 911 obviously has all that information for you. The dispatcher can have in case of a medical emergency or something else. Um, yeah, we had some significant damage over there. I drove through again yesterday. It seems like they got all the large trees down uh, so far, at least off of the homes. Um, so I think they're doing pretty good down there right now. Um, 
touching on the parade thing, uh, forget who brought it up, but we've done 20 of the drive-by hellos for birthdays so far. Um, so the kiddos are really liking that. And, um, and we're going to continue that. And we do, we do want to let everybody know to practice your social distancing and we don't want large groups together. Um, but we're more than happy to come out and take care of the kiddos out there that are having birthdays. So it makes my day to go out with them. So I enjoy it just as much. Thanks, as Cooper. Did you, uh, Tracy Cullums recently had a birthday. Did you do a drive-by for Tracy? I tried to. <laughs> I guess it was, a, it was a short one. I think you saw me out there. <laughs> road uh, maintenance and recreation report, uh, road supervisor, Tracy Cullums. Yes, I wanted to uh, bring to you uh, our 2020 Cape Seal project this year. Uh, something we're looking at. This is a... Uh, process that we've been doing for a while uh, it's, has extended the life of our streets for about 12 years to approximately 20 years. Uh, all these streets that I'm looking to do this year are 12 and 13 years old. There's 14 roads. Uh, this is on a state bid. Uh, so the, the approximate cost of this is $165,000. Uh, so I just wanted to talk to you about it and uh, possibly get a motion to proceed with this. Uh, you know, I'm not looking to do a contract or anything yet. I uh, just wanted to make sure you wanted to go ahead with this before before I talked uh, any further about it. Tracy, do you have, you, this is in your budget, I think, isn't it? This is in our budget. Well, so the, the only thing we've done so far is the curb, which came in just under 500,000. So altogether, this would put us at 654 which is a hundred thousand under budget. Okay. I'll make a motion that we uh, go out for, we're going out for bid in this case. No, this is a state contract, okay. state bid. So we just need a motion to approve. I'll make a motion to approve the uh, uh, Cape Seal program. I'll second that. Um, Tracy, did you have more to add to that? I did not, just whatever questions you had. Okay, I do have some, but Tom, did you have any first? Um, I don't this time. Okay, um, I know this is a regular thing we do. We're in an uncertain time financially going forward in the world. We're, we're looking at reduced JEDS collections and an amount we, we aren't going to know for a little while, I think, depending on how long things are locked down. We just got our property tax infusion for the first part of the year from the county auditor and hopefully we'll we'll get all we're expecting later in the year but depending on where the economy goes property tax collections could be down that's complete speculation i, I don't have you know, knowledge that they will be or won't be but people are having some financial difficulties so we could look at some reduced revenues going forward there too i, I just want to voice those concerns i'm, I'm happy to hear you said you're you're still a hundred thousand under the projected budget for the year are are you thinking we're going to spend that extra hundred as we move later in the year with other projects that are in the pipeline? No, this this was all I was going to do this year because okay. of the situation. I wasn't uh, going to do it in any other projects. Okay. Um, is, is this something that uh, I, I hate to defer maintenance that needs to be done, but is it something that needs to be done now as opposed to next year? Well, it really needs to be done because of the condition of the streets. I mean, I, unfortunately, anytime we defer maintenance, you know, the costs just uh, they get much higher because sometimes uh, you know, the condition of the roads gets much worse and you wouldn't be able to do a project like this. 
uh, you know, you'd have to go into more of a replacement project. So uh, I think it's uh, very important that we do it on these roads this year okay. while still staying under budget. Uh, a few other questions, but related comment. Also, I had some residents contact me from the neighborhood behind All Saints off of Glenover. I think they've been in touch with you or Mr. Warwick possibly also about some some problems with what I think was the, the Cape Seal or some other sealant put on their roadway in the last few years that's decaying rapidly. Have you been in touch with them about that? I have talked to a few and I've gone over and looked at it and I did not see a, uh, a problem uh, when it, when it goes on, it's rough, you know, and they're the traffic will smooth it out. I mean, they, uh, the, the one problem people think it's new pavement, it's not new pavement. It's a micro pavement that goes on top of existing pavement. Uh, so when I went over and looked at it, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. I thought it looked good. Um, did you speak to any of the residents back there about it? Well, I only spoke to one gentleman. I <clears throat> I didn't get any other phone calls. Earlier in the year, or last year, when they did it, I spoke to quite a few of them, but mm -hmm. not recently. Okay. Uh, there was someone who had identified some concerns on Facebook, I think, and I, I had suggested that uh, someone have him contact you. I don't know if it's the same person, but you may hear from someone else there. Hopefully the problem's alleviated. And I didn't mean to get off topic here, but it, I didn't want to let that pass either. My, my other questions, though, were uh, for Mr. Mr. Porter and Mr. Warwick, just financially, are we good with proceeding with this right now? I, I think believe we are. we are. Yeah. Okay. Mr. Warwick, are we? Yeah, I mean, as we mentioned, I think last meeting on, on this kind of subject, uh, I think we're in good shape. And uh, Tracy makes an excellent point. When you, when you push off road maintenance, it just, the cost just goes up and up and up. Mm -hmm. Okay, we make a we made a motion. You in a second? Yes. What's Rob? You gonna call a roll? Sure, Mr. LaBarbera. Aye. Mr. James. Aye. Mr. Weedman. Aye. Trace, anything else? No, that's all I had. Unless you have any questions. Yeah, I, I have some comments. Uh, you, we were talking before. Uh, Assistant Chief uh, Cooper mentioned uh, besides the Dillonville area. A number, number of other residents took a hit. We've got a chipping machine, uh, uh, pick up branches at Dillonville, for your streets were hit hard. One house, uh, Kugler Mill and uh, Weatherfield, there's a stack of branches out there. Uh, a number, if you go on Miami Hills Drive, uh, there are a number of houses have tree limbs at the curb. Uh, any chance, uh, I know yesterday we we're expecting 50 mile an hour winds, but any chance that we'll consider doing the pickup through some of those other streets? Uh, well, that, that would be up to you. Uh, with the social distancing and the, the uh, cancellation of our brush pickups and everything, we've been going out and clearing right-of-ways, clearing streets, but all of our services where we're going to people's houses have been postponed until further notice. Uh, we've talked to quite a few people out there told them different things that they could do. Uh, I mean, we have not been going to people's houses. Uh, you know, if that's something that you uh, want the maintenance department to do, that's certainly... Uh, well, you just you just mentioned it over in Dillonville, that area over there. I, I just, if you can just have somebody just drive by Miami Hills Drive, 
there's a number of houses there. Uh, just take a look at it and see if you could help them. Okay. Uh, another another question I had, Brian Sheehan. I, I believe I talked to Steve uh, about this uh, resident on Bayberry and Heitmeyer contacted me uh, the day after the storm. His power went out the, the next day you know, after the storm for several hours. And he said, neither the neighbors behind or in front of us, he said, ever loses power. Uh, he lives on Bayberry. If you turn in off of Kenwood Road, his house is on the right side of the street. Those houses seem to have an outage every few weeks. And then maybe you can check, is there a problem with the grid? Uh, I told him I would mention it in the workshop. And I might add, uh, our power in Sturbridge uh, goes out frequently. Uh, and I believe, uh, talking to Steve, uh, uh, your assistant, he said that uh, our former administrator was working on this. Uh, could you look into that? Yes. Yeah, I know our former administrator was working with uh, Duke's former representative, government representative, who's also gone now. So we have a new person uh, to deal with, a gov new government uh representative. So I'll give him a call and see what's going on. I mean, obviously, we've had troubles back in there for quite some time. I know uh, Duke's been over there. They've, they've done work. I know they've, they were talking to the residents and trying to work something out. I do not know where that stands right now, but I can certainly call uh, our representative and find out. Hey, Trace, I've got one more thing. Uh, uh, can, I, can I add something to the power thing, or is that what you were adding to, Jim? No, no, go ahead, go ahead, add to that. Okay, uh, Tracy, another concern related to that is a resident uh, who serves on one of our township boards, actually, who lives on Kugler Mill, spoke with the Duke people who were working on Kugler Mill Road on the pole construction uh, related to all the work going on there. The day the power went out last week, which was the day after the storm, and was told it was actually a planned outage as part of their construction. They took out the power in my neighborhood, in Heitmeyer Farms, in Sturbridge, and all the way down to Seasons Retirement Community, leaving all the elderly people in the dark for hours as well. Um, and this this was apparently not, at least based on this anecdotal report, was not due to storm damage. It was planned construction work. And if if they're planning to take the power out at times and affecting such a big region, can we require them to give notice in advance, especially with all these people working at home and schooling from home right now? That was a major inconvenience for a lot of people that day. And if if it's an act of God from weather or, or whatever, that's one thing. But if they're just going to take it down, they really need to notify people. Yes. I, I mean, I really can't speak to that. I don't know who he talked to on the job. I mean, anytime they have a planned outage, People are always notified. I've never known them not to notify people on a planned outage. Mm -hmm. So uh, what was the date of that? Do you know? Was it the day after the storm? Yeah. I believe so it was last Friday. Day. Yeah. It was the day after the storm. Yeah. Well, I'll talk to our Duke representative about that at the same time. But, I mean, I can't believe that they would do that without notification. Right. It may be incorrect information from somebody on the line who thought that and didn't realize it, or it may have been an emergency right. due to the storm where they had to take something down to fix it. So I recognize that. But if they do have planned ones going forward, they should find a way to get that word out at least and try to avoid disrupting people's lives. Yeah, that's what they do. Yeah, they've done that, Trace. In the past, I think they've always notified us, haven't they? That, that seems to be... Yeah. yeah, they always notify us. 
and all the people that are affected also. Good. I, I have one more item, Trace. Uh, this bothers me. One of our, one of our, one of your men told me this. Uh, an update on the story. Uh, apparently, a, a senior citizen on Sycamore Road, senior citizen, was approached by, and he thought one of your men. He said, "We've got some extra asphalt. I can asphalt your driveway." He said, "It'll cost you two hundred bucks." So the senior citizen gives him two hundred dollars. He finishes the job, comes back, knocks on the door, and says, "You know what?" I use asphalt. I need a thousand dollars. So the guy gave him a thousand dollars, twelve hundred dollars. He stopped one of your guys, one of the maintenance guys, and said, "Hey, this isn't working right. What's wrong with this asphalt?" And the guy said, "What asphalt? We that's not." Thank you. They, apparently, they stole asphalt from the township, and they're going around. They they got this five hundred dollars, and that's it's good. kind of a sad story. And uh, I guess that they approached another person and got another person also. Yes, so it was not our guys. It, it absolutely was wasn't. Yeah, it was people was. posing as members of Barrett's crew who was doing the Sycamore Road project. They said they were working for Barrett, not for the township. So Barrett's working for us. So they stole the the, the coal patch from Barrett's lot. And I believe the number that this guy ended up paying him was six hundred dollars, and he did. He got the neighbor for about fifty or so. I have talked to uh, Corporal Kidd about that. He went over there uh, to talk to the gentleman. I have not followed up with uh, with Mr. Kidd, so I don't know what has come of that. Uh, but that that is what happened. Somebody. Uh, Couple guys in a pickup truck. That's a shame. That's a shame. Thanks, Trace. Yes. Next up, our law director, Mr. D. Hey, Jim, sorry. A few other questions, if I could. Different topic. Tracy, sorry, I got to find you in the grid on the screen here. <laughs> you moved suddenly somehow. Um, uh, just something to bring to your attention going forward into the spring here as your guys are out doing work. Up in the northern part of the township on, looking at my map, on Millview Drive and Glen Mill Court near Marlette, right off of Snyder. Last fall, when I was walking those neighborhoods, um, several residents pointed out township trees in the right-of-way um, that were poorly maintained, according to them. There were a few dead ones, and there were some that had been pulled out or actually cut down, I guess, leaving stumps there in what they consider their yard, even though it may be our right-of-way. Can you have your guys at some point when they're up there take a look just along the right of way in those neighborhoods and see if anything needs tidying up that we've left behind on, on our property there? That would be, be helpful and make them happy, I think. Sure. Uh, I know we did get a lot of stumps yeah. uh, uh, ground out, so those could have been on that list. I'll check that. As far as maintenance of trees in the right of way, anytime there's a problem, all the residents have to do is call us. Obviously, we don't go around looking at every right-of-way tree in the township. So if something needs maintenance, all they have to do is call us. Great, thank you. And Trace, those, I think those trees are pretty susceptible because they're all Bradford pears along that street and those things don't last forever, unfortunately. No, they don't. Those are ones that were planted after the tornado. Okay, any other comments? Any questions for Tracy anymore? All right, Law Director, Deepak Desai. Thank you, Mr. LaBarbera. Nothing to report. Okay. Qu question. Sorry. Also, just to alert you, Mr. Desai, 
Um, yesterday, Deer Park City Council met and they had an online meeting on Facebook Live. They had a public hearing first at 630 to consider the JEDD agreement with Sycamore Township. Apparently they had approved it in the past and hadn't had a public hearing as the law required. I, I, I watched the meeting. They had some technical difficulties at first. It was their first online meeting. I know we had trouble with audio with ours as well, but you, you couldn't hear much of their meeting. So they adjourned, came back. Uh, waited for public comments, didn't get any, and then moved on to their regular meeting. And I, I tried to listen and watch the regular meeting. The audio was terrible in parts of it, but I'm not certain they then went back and approved the JEDD again after the public hearing. I, I don't know if that's strictly required, but I would think the approval has to follow a hearing, not precede it, even if they already did it. Um, that's a question you could answer, but if you could check with your park and make sure that one of the things they passed was actually approval again, if that's necessary. We just we want to get this done and, and don't want them to have to do it again. But if if that approval is necessary, please check on it. Sure. Uh, Ray, you want to reach out to BJ or you want me to do that? I'll call BJ. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure they passed it. They had done it prior and then we explained to BJ kind of have to do the hearing. So that's what that was. So I'll I'll, I'll check in with him today. Yeah, and if you if uh, if he could pass along if they did do a resolution if he could pass along that or at least you know the numbers so I could put it in the contract. Sure. Thank sure. you. Deepak, anything else? Yes, sir. All right, our administrator in Sycamore Township is Mr. Ray Ward. Ray, what do you have? I've got three items. Uh, first one is a draft social media policy for the handbook. And Rob Ebel, if you'll put that document up, please. And you also have this in your packet. Um, and this, I'm not, uh, this language has uh, gone uh, through scrutiny by uh, uh, Mr. Desai and Mr. James, and I don't know who else, but this is the, uh, the language that uh, is on the table for consideration today. Ray, are you looking for a motion to uh, approve the inclusion of this into the employee manual? Yes. I so move. I will second that. Second. I, I, I'll, I'll add some input as to this. At the Ohio Township Association convention this year, they, they made a push in, uh, I think, a few of the seminars that I attended, uh, and one in particular, that it's very important that Townships have policies such as these because there is conflicting case law in the state of Ohio now, which renders public employees uh, Facebook posts and other social media posts that they thought were private, uh, renders them to be public records and gives the, the township or whatever government um, authority they work for an obligation to have to retain those records at that point. And one of the ways to avoid that is to make sure there are clear disclaimers made if there's any possibility of confusion that someone is speaking officially as opposed to personally. And this policy uh, remedies that, at least in part. Um, so I think it's an important thing for us to do. We want to make sure people know when our employees are talking, they're speaking for themselves, not for the township as a whole when that occurs. In discussion, vote. Mr. Uh, Mr. LaBarbera. Aye. Mr. James. 
Aye. Mr. Weedman. I, I couldn't hear that. Aye. Mr. Weedman. Aye. Thank you. Next item uh, is another, uh, uh, some more language for the uh, play handbook. It's political activities. It's in your packet. Um, once again, this went through a, a, a lot of uh, scrutiny um, and uh, uh, it's on the table for consideration today. Uh, I, I have a couple of questions and some comments. Can everybody hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay, go ahead, Tom. Uh, Ray, uh, two months ago, you stated in our February workshop that, quote, many, many townships in the state have policies prohibiting employees from working on campaigns, end quote. Many, many seemed like a lot of townships to me. So I asked if you knew what percentage of the townships have those policies in effect, and you did not. Since that time, have you identified what percentage of the 1,308 townships in the state actually have policies that prohibit political participation in violation of their employees' First Amendment rights? I have not. Okay. So, Ray, you mentioned uh, also that uh, Sims Township has a policy in their handbook that prohibits any participation in the political process. I know that you and at least one of our other fellow trustees used that as a model and in support of developing a policy for Sycamore Township. I read that policy and it was extreme in my opinion. Right after our meeting in February, I had a conversation with two of the tr three trustees in Sims Township and they informed me that this policy was written in 2001, well before any of the existing trustees were even elected. As of last Thursday, two of the trustees told me that they're going to remove all of that language from their personnel policy manual because they don't want to abridge the rights of their employees and they're seriously concerned what litigation exposure they would have by enforcing that policy. I know that policy was, at least originally, part of the foundation of your push along with Mr. LaBarbera to adopt the policy. Now that the policy is going to be eliminated in Sims, can you tell me what other townships policy you're looking at to help develop a framework for new language or maybe just generally speaking, just restrictive politics that you favor? I, since that uh, last meeting, when that was discussed, I haven't looked at any other policies. So I wasn't yeah, in on the drafting of this. Yeah, and I, if I could just interject, I uh, apologize uh, to interrupt you there, Ray, but the policy that is before the board today is a policy that is nowhere near what Sims Township policy was. I get uh, the policy that is um, before the board today is a policy that I extracted out of a case from the Southern District of Ohio, uh, the Western Division at Dayton, uh, a decision by Judge Rice. So I just want to make that clear. What we're looking at today is not in any way, shape, or form um, uh, based on the Sims Township policy. Sorry to interrupt, Ray. Mr. Weedman. Okay. Let me just add to that too. Sorry, Mr. Desai and I have had a little back and forth communication about that too. And I, I agree the Sims policy was a bit extreme and it seemed to be modeled on one from uh, Liberty Township in Delaware County, which was very similar also. So the, this policy moved in a very different direction from that. So continue, please. Uh, I have some questions for Deepak as well. Um, 
Deepaki, as our law director, I'd like to ask you a few questions regarding this subject. You've researched this subject extensively, I presume, correct? Uh, my law clerk has, and I have read through the cases that she has brought to me, but our firm as a team has researched it extensively. And you just told us that you uh, you did write paragraph two of the proposed language that Mr. Ward presented to us today? I did. And I did notice that you, um, uh, I did read City of Dayton versus Reynolds. And in that case, I believe, and, I'm, and you can help me with this, but I believe those were civil servants and don't they live by a different rule that maybe other employees have to live by? Well, the case was in federal court regarding their constitutional rights under the First Amendment. So the Ohio Revised Code statutes on civil servants were not at play. Okay. I read both the, the George Bode versus Kenner City case, as well as the Ruff versus Leavenworth case, both cases that you provided to us to review. And I'm sure that both of my trust, fellow trustees read those in detail as I did. As you know, the employees prevailed in both of those cases. And of course, the city had to pay the legal fees for the plaintiffs, which was a substantial amount of money. From everything that I read in those two cases, the one thing that stuck out to me was how much more restrictive our proposed language is versus the language in those two cases. So I'm wondering if those two cases could not survive constitutional scrutiny with language less restrictive than the new proposed language for Sycamore Township, how could we possibly support this language in our township policy? And you don't have to answer that, it's strictly a rhetorical question, but let me ask this. In your research, you probably looked at a lot of cases, correct? Yes, we looked at a number of cases. Okay, I think I probably know the answer to this question because I too did a little research. But what percentage of the cases did the written policy of local governments not pass constitutional scrutiny and left the government entity, and in turn, the residents of that government entity, holding the bag with significant financial liability. So let me answer that question in a little bit broader um, format. Um, and I, and I, part of this is I just want the residents who are, have taken the time out of their schedules to view this live to understand what we're talking about uh, and understand um, what the township is trying to achieve and what I drafted. So we're talking about First Amendment right to free speech. Um, as I believe most of us um, are aware, that is a right protected under the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. Um, it is a right that um, prohibits governmental intrusion and is always very, very uh, scrutinized whenever the government tries to restrict free speech. In this uh, particular situation, what we're dealing with is political speech, right? As an American, you can say, I love the Trump administration. As an American, I hate the Trump administration. As an American, I love the Obama administration. As an American, I hated the Obama administration. That is one of our rights as Americans is to comment on government and to not risk being um, uh, penalized for it. So you take that right that the Constitution um, provides and you then deal with 
a situation where a government wants to limit an employee's right to speak about political activity. Most of us, I think, would have a initial reaction of, well, you can't restrict that if you're a public employer because you're government and I have a First Amendment right. Um, honestly, that was a lot of my thought when I entered this research several months ago. As I discussed at one of our meetings, what I found, surprisingly, was that the case, the courts, the federal courts, have said public employers have a compelling governmental interest in making the work environment politically neutral, apolitical, if you will. And so governments, public employers, are allowed to restrict the political activities of their public employees for the compelling interest of keeping the work environment politically neutral. The problem that most public employers have had is that the government cannot enact a law that is overly broad or that is ambiguous. The policy must be narrowly tailored to the compelling governmental interest. So I think an example helps. The government has a compelling government, gover sorry, a compelling interest to prevent people from yelling fire in a movie theater. And the reason is you're going to incite panic, you're gonna cause people to rush to the door and people can be, be injured. On top of that, the business suffers a loss of revenue. So there's a compelling governmental interest for the government to be able to say, we can restrict free speech and tell you you cannot yell fire in a movie theater. What the government could not do is say, you can't use the word fire at all because that is overly broad and is not narrowly tailored to the compelling governmental interest of preventing panic and injury in a movie theater. The other piece of that is that it can't be ambiguous. So if you have a law that says you cannot yell fire in a movie theater, that law may be found to be ambiguous. Does that mean that when you see a huge fire scene in Die Hard 3 that you can't yell, oh my God, look at that fire. So the law, in addition to being narrowly tailored, can't be ambiguous. So you would have to say you cannot yell fire in a movie theater unless you're reacting to a scene in the movie. So within that framework, and I hope that example helps, what we have found in the cases is that most governmental entities don't fail the constitutional scrutiny of the courts because they lack a compelling interest. They fail because they do not narrowly tailor their policy to the compelling interest of making the work environment politically neutral. And they do not, uh, and they make their, their um, policy ambiguous. 
That's where most public employers fail because they will say something like, you are prohibited from engaging in political campaigns. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean I can't put a bumper sticker on my car? Does that mean I can't wear a t-shirt? Does that mean I can't tell my neighbor when we're talking over the fence that, hey, I think candidate A is great. I don't think candidate B is so good. That's ambiguous. And it's also not narrowly tailored. That is where most of the problem comes for public employers in these cases. It's not that they don't have a compelling governmental interest. It is that they do not narrowly tailor their policy and they do not make it clear. So what I did um, is I asked my law clerk to go and look at policies that were held to be constitutional. And lo and behold, as you mentioned in that city of Dayton case, um, she came back with a policy that I think takes care of making the work environment politically neutral, but also is narrowly tailored and is not ambiguous. And I just would like to mention a couple of things um, about that. First and foremost, as any attorney in this area will tell you, it is a slippery slope. Um, and to your question, Mr. Weedman, yes, the, the vast majority of cases you find that these policies are struck down. Again, not because there is not a compelling governmental interest, but because the public employer failed to narrowly tailor their policy and their policy is ambiguous. In the so, eyes of a specific is, judge as well, correct? Right, and that, that's the other thing. The other slippery slope aspect is we have hundreds of district courts throughout the United States. Um, it's essentially the court of common pleas at the federal level. And as a result, um, one judge may view something to be constitutional and one judge may not. Correct. And you are always going to be subject to those, um, if you will, um, human characteristics. But the case that I relied on is the city of Dayton versus Reynolds. And here in Cincinnati, we are in what's called the United States District Court for the Southern District of Ohio, the Western Division. This case is from the United States District Court, Southern District of Ohio, Western Division. The only difference is there's one in Dayton and there's one in Cincinnati. And this is from Dayton, <clears throat> but it was authored by Judge Rice who's a very well-respected judge. And in this case, um, what the court basically said was that you have the ability to narrowly tailor a policy that's going to be both constitutional and is going to be, um, well, it's going to be constitutional because it's narrowly tailored and it's not ambiguous. In this case, here was the policy. No employee shall take any part in political campaigning further than to express privately their opinions. Political campaigning includes any overt public expression or activity for or against a political organization or candidate, such as a formal public endorsement, acting as a poll worker, circulating nominating petitions, 
distributing campaign material of any kind or posting campaign material other than on one's own person or personal private property. If you look at the policy that is before the board, you can see that I basically plagiarized that. And the reason I did that is, while it's a slippery slope, and I can't guarantee the township won't get sued for this policy and that it won't be held to be unconstitutional, I can tell you when you look at a case from the United States District Court, the Southern District of Ohio, Western Division, and we basically use that exact policy, it's as close as I can come to saying this is good to go. Is it is it 100% safe? No, it's, it is a slippery slope because another judge might view this differently. And you have to remember a lot of cases turn on the facts and how it is applied in that case. One thing to note that's different about this policy um, and a thank you to, uh, to Trustee James uh, I did share the first draft of this policy with him, and he pointed out to me that there was a revised code provision that specifically uh, uh, prohibited any type of restriction on circulating nominating petitions. So if you look at the policy that's before the board, you'll see that piece of it has been taken out. Also, as I looked at the statute that Trustee James mentioned to me, I saw a couple other statutes that I thought the policy that was approved in the Reynolds case may run afoul of, and that was um, acting as a poll worker. So we took that piece out. And just to make sure everybody understood, in the third paragraph of that policy, we specifically say this does not apply to people circulating nominating petitions. It does not apply to election officials working on registration or election day, and it does not apply to an employee who would like to run for an elected office in the township. So understand that, yes, in the vast majority of the cases that I reviewed, um, the court struck down the policy. It is because, as I was explaining before, the government employer failed to narrowly tailor their policy and failed to make it unambiguous. Here, we have narrowly tailored it. We have made it unambiguous. And we are relying upon a case out of the jurisdiction, the federal jurisdiction in which we sit. And that is, I think, as safe an approach as you can take to this controversial topic. Great. So I do have a couple questions for you. Let's test that ambiguity ambiguity a minute, okay? Mm -hmm. Let's say I'm an employee of the township and I belong to a social club that has a political affiliation with the Sunshine Party. I serve on the board of the, the, the board's executive committee of that organization. The executive committee meets every election to endorse candidates in the Sunshine Party for upcoming elections and help them get elected because it is our personal belief that the Sunshine Party candidates are in the best interest of our community. That is a personal opinion, which under the US Constitution, I am entitled to. In looking at paragraph two that you wrote, would I be in violation of the personnel policy if I was to vote as a member of the board executive committee to endorse a candidate in the Sunshine Party? That's a lot for me to take in at once, so I'm kind of thinking through it here. 
Are you referring to an elect, uh, a publicly elected position? I'm not referring to a publicly elected position. This is a social club that is the Sunshine Party Republic, the Sunshine Party uh, uh, Club, the Sycamore Township Sunshine Party Club. So it's it's nothing that's uh, publicly elected. It's nothing sanctioned by the revised code. That's correct. Okay. So in the Dayton case, the situation was that. Well, it it answer, I think it answers your question, which is that the employee Reynolds uh, was president of the Fraternal Order of Police, Lodge Number Forty Four, and he signed a letter endorsing a candidate for election to the Dayton City Commission. And even though he was doing that as the president of the FOP, the policy restricting political activity was still found to be constitutional as applied to him. So based on that and my limited time to evaluate the question, I would say if a public employee who's a president of the FOP can be subject to the manual, the policy, that a public employee who's in a uh, private club could also be subject to it. Okay. Let me add to that, Tom, if I could address your example there too, because I, I'm not sure Deepak answered the question you asked. Uh, let, let's say the Sunshine Party it has private members. You're one of them. Let's say Tracy's one and it's meeting on his back porch. Um, there's a distinction between private activity in this policy and public activity. Certainly members of the club who happen to be township employees can privately vote for this social club you've talked about to make an endorsement. The distinction is if the employee were then to go out and be the face of that and the spokesperson and say make commercials or stand on the street corner publicly declaring that I have endorsed, then that is a sort of behavior I understand would not be allowed for the employee under this. But the, the decision to have private input in a private social club and make input and even vote within that is not infringed upon at all by this. Am I, am I correct in that, Mr. Desai? Correct. I do not see that in paragraph two. Can you point that out to me, Mr. James? Well, it doesn't prohibit it in paragraph two, so there's nothing to point out. But let me read paragraph two here, and let's put it up on the screen. That's, that's good. To further promote an apolitical work environment, the employee shall not engage in any political campaigning pertaining to Sycamore Township other than to express privately their opinions. Political campaigning includes any overt public expression, including without limitation, on interactive computer-mediated technologies, blah, 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 social media, in other words, or overt public activity for or against a public organization, candidate, or referendum issue, such as a formal public endorsement, distributing campaign material of any kind, or posting campaign material other than on one's own person or personal private property. There's nothing in there that prohibits a township employee from gathering as part of the, the Sunshine Party organization and participating in the organization's vote to determine its endorsed candidate. Nothing at all. Is that how you read it, Deepak? Yes. Um, it, again, I think that first sentence that talks about, you know, expressing privately their opinions would, would sort of speak to that, but there's nothing prohibiting uh, being part of a private group. Okay. So uh, let me ask you another question. Let's say that I'm an employee and I run for elected office as precinct executive for the Sunshine Party, and the voters in my precinct elect me. As part of my duty and responsibility as a precinct executive, I am responsible for endorsing Sunshine Party candidates with my fellow precinct executives 
as well as actively promoting and campaigning for them. This is my statutory responsibility as an officially elected precinct executive. When I carry out my responsibilities that I'm obligated to as an elected official, am I violating paragraph two of the guidelines you wrote? So let me make sure I understand this correctly. So now you're talking about a precinct executive who is publicly elected. Is that, is that correct, Mr. Whedon? That's correct. Okay. So you have a, a statutorily authorized position that is publicly elected. And then you're telling me there's a statutory duty to endorse a candidate and to support that candidate, both vocally, financially, or whatever. Correct. Am I, am I understanding everything correctly? Really promoting and campaigning for them. That's correct. Yeah. So in that particular case, I would say that this policy would not prohibit that. And that might be something that we want to make clear, provided all the assumptions I just gave my opinion on are accurate. So if there is in fact a revised code scheme that provides for publicly electing such an individual, and in fact, the revised code statutorily imposes upon them the duty to endorse and campaign, then I would, I would say again, sitting here, you know, cold, that that would be something that the policy would not prohibit. Um, and I'd want to call something like that out specifically in paragraph three, like we did with the uh, uh, nominating petitions and the uh, uh, the election officials. My understanding is precinct officials don't individually endorse, of course, anyway. They vote to uh, give the party's endorsement or the, the local precinct's endorsement with their fellow precinct chairs. I, I didn't understand uh, you, Mr. Weedman, for example, as a precinct executive or Mr. Kellums as one to have individual blessing authority to endorse within the precinct itself. Am I incorrect about that? Uh, so the precinct executives, uh, through the leadership of the ward chairs, meet, vote to endorse a candidate, and pass that endorsement on to the Hamilton County party uh, for uh, uh, to ratify that. That right. So if you were to disagree with the vote of the fellow ward chairman, you would not have the authority to individually endorse some other candidate yourself, would you? Uh, that would be correct. Hmm. Yeah, I'll I'll take a look at that because that that's a little bit different scenario then. Um, well, well, wait, um, that doesn't necessarily they vote. They the precinct executive votes. That's mm -hmm. endorsed. They're going to endorse Mr. Jones, Mr. James, whoever. Then. That doesn't mean that they have to go out and support that guy and go door to door and all that. That exactly. That's exactly what it means, Mr. That's, not, uh, but that's what a precinct executive is elected to do. He's elected to cast a vote for that person. The elected, the, the elected precinct executive is uh, is elected to actively participate in the process to get candidates of that party elected in the election. That's what they're that's what they're elected to do. Not just vote. That's not just a, that's one of many functions that a precinct executive does. But but Mr. Weedman, is is that duty that you're saying the precinct executive has, is that by practice or is that statutorily prescribed? 
I'll leave that to you, but I, um, I would suggest that it, uh, either way, it's they're, they're duly elected officials. And in this case, they would not be prohibited from uh, participating in the process. As you have suggested in, the, as you have outlined in, uh, in paragraph two. Yeah. So I'll, I'll have to look into that specific question. I I'm not familiar with that that scenario. And, and I guess this brings up another question. You know, how do we reconcile with Joe Burke, who's all, also works for the township, and he's a big promoter of the Blue Moon Party and their candidates? Are we going to tell him that I can work for the Sunshine Party? candidates, but he can't work for the Blue Moon Party candidates? Won't that potentially subject us to the argument of unfair treatment of Joe Burke, even though I have a duty as a precinct executive? Yeah, I'll look into the precinct executive question. I'm not sure. Um, again, I would stick by my original answers. It's sort of like the nominating petition issue. If we're talking about elected officials who have statutorily prescribed duties um, under the revised code, um, then that gives me pause about whether the policy would apply to them. Um, but if it's more a matter of practice or personal preference to go out and, and campaign and promote, that's a different scenario where you don't have statutory duty to do that. Um, according, Deepak, according to the new language in paragraph two, an employee can talk to his next door neighbor in a private conversation about who he supports, and that is not specifically prohibited. Can he go to his friend on the next block and have that same private conversation? What about his cousin in another neighborhood? What constitutes a private conversation? Under that restriction, an employee could, quote, privately express their opinion to every resident in Sycamore Township township so long as it was expressed privately. Yeah, I think you have to read that in the context <clears throat> of the next sentence, which is part of the same paragraph, to give you an idea of what expressing your private opinion means, let us tell you what it doesn't mean. You can't make an overt public expression. You can't make uh, engage in overt public activity. Um, by a formal endorsement, by distributing campaign material, uh, by putting up campaign signs, other than on your own property, of course. So that's where the line is drawn. Um, you know, if somebody wants to uh, express their opinion to their neighbor while they're out cutting the grass, they run into their cousin at the supermarket and they wanna express their private opinion there, they can do that. It's the overt political activity that the policy prohibits. So isn't that I'm sorry, say it again? Isn't there plenty of ambiguity there? I don't think so. And so, Judge Rice and Judge Rice didn't think so. Taking a walk and I just happen to to uh, to walk down the block and I see twenty neighbors and I tell all of them, give them my, express my opinion to all of them, am I violating the law? Am I violating the rules? I don't think so. Um, I mean, it's sort so of, I, a, pardon me, I think that's a little bit, you know, unlikely, but to the extent you want to use that example, what I would say again is that as long as you're expressing your opinion privately while you're out walking your dog, taking a jog, and you happen to come across 20 neighbors and you know, you just want to say, hey, I love candidate A and I don't like candidate B. 
you can do that because you're not distributing campaign material. You're not putting up campaign signs. Um, again, you're not engaging in any overt public activity or um, uh, uh, public expression. On the other hand, if you're out canvassing in a neighborhood nowhere near your own, knocking on doors, handing out campaign material, that is something that as an employee of the township, this would prevent. But the underlying purpose of all this, of course, is in the, the first paragraphs of this and in some other thoughts in the cases, Mr. Desai mentioned, uh, we value our employees' First Amendment rights. Absolutely. They should be able to you know, vote for any candidate they want and speak privately about that. But being public employees puts a special obligation on them here. We want to promote an apolitical work environment, meaning one without politics, and to protect employees from political pressures where, say, a, a trustee leans on a longtime employee and says, I need your support. You know, I'm, I'm responsible for you having a job. You need to support me. That's not fair to the employee. It puts them in an awkward position. It also creates the impression to our residents that uh, politics matter in terms of what the township is doing and what services it's providing. Other townships have explicit policies as to that. Delhi, for example, says in their handbook, employees of the township shall serve all township residents equally. The political opinions or affiliations of any resident shall in no way affect the amount or quality of service received from the township. We want our residents to have that same feeling about all of us and not to have employees feeling that they're pressured to campaign for their bosses within the township. Um, whether you support them or not. So that's the purpose of this. And we're trying to uh, mold it in a way where it protects our employees in a narrowly tailored way that fulfills the compelling interest of avoiding politi politicization of the public employees. The Supreme Court has recognized government entities may impose restraints on the job-related speech of public employees that would be plainly unconstitutional if it were applied to the public at large. The Supreme Court has concluded that a narrow class of speech restrictions based on an interest in allowing governmental entities to perform their functions doesn't run afoul of the First Amendment. That's in the famous Citizen United cases of all places, in fact. Uh, and Sycamore has a compelling interest in ensuring its resolutions and programs are executed apolitically and without any political bias or favoritism. The township has a compelling interest in maintaining the loyalty, efficiency, and nonpartisanship of its public employees and preventing them from being involved in the politics that elect their boss to unvoid any uh, improper influences. So, Mr. Weedman, I'm I'm sure you don't want the workplace politicized either. I'm sure you don't want our employees feeling pressure to have to go against their own personal feelings politically, because they feel like they need to do it to respond to the the overlords who are, are ultimately in charge. How do we accomplish that? So, and if I could just maybe let me, um, let me address that in a minute. But I have one more question for Deepak. Deepak, let me ask his final question. In your professional opinion, and as an attorney and our law director, do you think it is wise and worth the risk of serious financial exposure to have a policy that restricts our employees from freely participating in the political process and robbing them of their constitutionally guaranteed First Amendment rights? What is your opinion on well, I can't answer that question the way you phrased it because I don't think this policy robs public employees well, that constitutionally protected rights. My, exclude that from my question and then answer the question. So the question I think it really gets down to is the, is the township uh, exposing itself to litigation by imposing such a policy? 
And the answer to that is clearly, yeah, that's a real possibility. Because if there's never been such a policy in place, um, it is very likely that somebody is not going to be happy about there being a new policy in place and will then challenge it. Um, but you have to understand, as Mr. James was saying, um, the compelling interest, and Judge Rice uh, laid out four of them, avoidance of a civil service built on patronage, governmental impartiality, promote the independence of civil servants, public interest in avoiding the buildup of strongly entrenched political machines. Those were four interests that Judge Rice in this Dayton versus Reynolds case found the policy to promote. And he went on to say, the city establishes the prohibitions in an effort to prevent city employees from being pressured into such participation because such pressures may adversely affect employee morale and efficiency. The city employee might reasonably fear retaliation for failing to support or contribute to a city commission candidate if there is no prohibition on their not participating in these activities. Incumbent city commissioners might gain an unfair political advantage if city employees were not prohibited from participating in city commission elections and political favoritism or the appearance of political favoritism might result from the city employees participating in city elections. So what Judge Rice is saying is that these policies that are protecting these interests are real and they're legitimate because they protect the employees and they protect the township or governmental entity. So what I think I heard you say, Mr. Deepak, was, was that that you think that we run significant risk in, in, in uh, litigation exposure uh, by putting together this policy, putting this policy in place, just like most other ones did. I mean, you talked about ambiguity and you talked about the fact that every judge is different and every judge looks at this differently. And I might add that in our judicial system locally, uh, which a lot of the, a lot of the district court judges come from, uh, their law clerks work for them tirelessly and endlessly to get them elected and reelected. So um, the suggestion that a district judge hearing this case might not, from, from the uh, Cincinnati district, might not suggest that, and I don't think there, I think this might go beyond the bounds of reasonableness, uh, is very possible. And so I ask you that question because I want to let the residents know that we, we're going to, if we make a decision to uh, favorably on paragraph two, that we knowingly run the risk of subjecting them to significant uh, financial exposure. So thank you for your answers, Deepak. Um, I do want to address Mr. James, if I could. Uh, and I know quickly, by the way, that Mr. Porter got dropped out of the conference here. He just called me and he's trying to get back in. Um, Mr. Ebel, if you're monitoring and he's waiting in the waiting room or something. He's, he, hasn't, he has not logged in yet. He has not. Okay, thank you. I'm sorry to interrupt, Mr. Wiesman. So, Mr. James, in a previous meeting, you said, and I quote, I agree, I don't want to restrict our employees' First Amendment rights. 
but I do not, I do want to protect them from undue influence, end of quote. And then you went on to say that the federal government has the hatchet, which prevents employees of government bodies from being, quote, coerced into politicking for their bosses, end quote. Let me say right here and right now publicly, there clearly is no evidence whatsoever that coercion of our employees has ever taken place in this township. Absolutely none. Now, there are plenty of false allegations, that I can assure you, but absolutely zero evidence. And Mr. James, let me say I agree with you that coercion to participate in is wrong and should never take place. But by restricting participation altogether, we unlawfully go beyond the bounds of eliminating coercion and right into the center of abridging the freedoms and constitutional rights of our employees. That is why I strongly support, oppose the language as written in second paragraph. In the first paragraph, it says that we, quote, do value your first, the, the First Amendment rights of our employees, and in no way would we want to infringe on those rights intentionally or unintentionally. It is incumbent upon us as trustees to refrain from actively or overtly soliciting the assistance of an employee regarding political activities of any sort. I totally agree with all of that. That is all stated out in the first paragraph. The thing that is so unbelievable is we start the first paragraph stating that we value our employees' First Amendment rights, and in the second paragraph, we completely torpedo our employees' First Amendment rights. This language is highly probable to place our township and its residents in financial jeopardy by subjecting us to expensive litigation, both attempting to defend our position and more likely losing a court case, as Deepak has suggested, happens in the vast majority of these cases. I read that um, Mr. LaBarbera has brought this subject up no less than six times in public meetings in his first two years on the board. And no less than six times was told by our law director, Doug Miller, that he researched the situation and we cannot prohibit the First Amendment rights of our employees, period. By restricting our employees from participating in the political process and expressing their opinion, we are doing just that. Participating in the political process is the foundation of our republic. Where does this end? Do we next decide to prohibit the religious freedoms because we don't like the religion an employee chooses to practice? When our employees took a job with the township, many of them over 20 years ago, we never told them that they had to give up their constitutional First Amendment rights as a condition of employment. For us to suggest that we now want to change the rules and abridge the rights of our employees is absolutely offensive to me. We live in America, and this is completely un-American. People all over the world living under oppressive government rule would give anything to live with the freedoms we have in this country. And now you're suggesting that this board should take some of those rights away from our employees. To me, that is totally and completely unacceptable. In summary, let me just say uh, that I fully support the language in the first paragraph as great policy for our country. I believe the language in this paragraph two that has been presented today is totally wrong, is highly offensive, and subjects our township residents to significant financial exposure. It would be a travesty for our employees and our residents to implement such a reckless policy, and I absolutely cannot support that language under any circumstances. And I'm, and I'm done with my comments. Okay, and I'll add, it, I'll add something into this. Can you hear me? Am I okay? 
because yeah. I know that when I look for a second. And I, I brought this up before, Mr. Weedman, in all due respect, the 2017 election when, when I ran, um, the residents were concerned because they thought it was improper because at every single polling location, we had a Sycamore Township worker. And I was told this was a practice that went on for 32 years. I brought this up a number of times. There is a conceptual problem, a conceptual problem. One of the employees, Tracy Kellum, sitting right here with us this morning, uh, worked the Deer Park High School location with Tom Weedman and Cliff Bishop all day long, November the 7th. On December the 7th, he was given a raise of over $5,500 in a three-year contract that is a, a perpetual contract that will never end guaranteed contract given the three weeks before I was sworn in. In researching this, this is unprecedented, the contract he has for his position. Everyone who worked the polls that year got a significant raise. This past year, the cost of living was 1.6%. We had guys making 5%, 5.8%, one worker that worked down the street here in the Sturbridge location. Um, we've heard your this is America, Mr. LeBarber's speech, over and over again. LeBarber, you have no idea what Let me finish. Let me finish my, we were respectful to you, Tom. Please let me speak, okay? If you can hold your breath for a minute. We heard this. Your, your, your First Amendment got to support the candidate of your choice. However, with the exception of two, maybe be three of those employees, they don't even live in Sycamore Township. No township, village, city, Anderson, Green, Sam's, Loveland, Madeira, Deerfield, we went all around. Nobody. And they were appalled that we had this in our township that went on for years and years. We encouraged this activity. According to some former employees, they were coerced into working and taking the day off. There's a lot of pressure, whether you think it or not, Tom, if the guy next to you is going to go work for Tracy and go, I'll work the polls. And the next guy is going to sit there and say, what? Because in that month period between election day and when we get the raises out, you want to be on your best behavior. So if your boss is Tracy Cullums, everyone knows where he stands politically. And uh, he's the one who's going to be giving out the raises in a month. Well, I better show him I'm a team player. There's been intimidation, retaliation. It's gone on no moss, no more in Sycamore Township. You, you have used the township employees for personal benefit. We don't have our employees. We don't have these people put in this position again. That's the end of it, as far as I'm concerned. So, Mr. LaBarber, let me just say, you have no idea what went on in that executive session when contracts and raises were discussed because you weren't there. And in fact, you weren't even a trustee yet. Well, I saw the raises. I stopped and didn't interrupt you. Don't mislead the public in saying that you know what that was discussed because you clearly don't. You weren't there. I will say that after the election, I had seven different employees all come to me and express their concerns about your vindictiveness and that they were concerned that you would take revenge out on them solely because... <laughs> Exercise gentlemen, 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 gentlemen. We are way off business here. Let's, yeah. We're not, uh, we're not sticking with the agenda. We, we, we are off the agenda. Let's get back on to it. Deepak, I am not done. I'm going to finish this. 
I will Mr. Mr. Weaven, Mr. Weaven, you're, you're you're engaging in a personal attack here that has I'm nothing not to do with the policy okay. in front of us. Speaking the facts, Deepak, let's be clear. That Mr. Mr. Weaven, I, I would I would implore you. I think everyone understands where where the conflict lies, and what is before us today. We've got to keep an orderly meeting here. Is you know, is, is the political activity policy? I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you this. When we have a when we have a when we have a trustee goes into a public meeting and drags one of his employees through the mud, someone's got to defend him. In this case, I'm going to be defending him. The contracts that were developed in the end was the only reason the, the, the only reason for the raises and contracts it was because the employees earned those contracts and those raises they earned them through merit and hard work and service to our residents there was no other reason and when you allege any other reason you are clearly lying to our residents for political purposes a very incident a very coincidental I'm that now mr LeBarbe I call for a vote now May I have a comment? We, we haven't had a motion yet. Yeah, there's no motion. <clears throat> but but I, I have a further comment here as well. I want to find a way to make this work, to make our environment for our township employees apolitical. Mr. Weedman shares in that view, it sounds like. Mr. LaBarbera shares in that view. There are constitutional ways to make that happen. Mr. Desai is as confident as he can be that this is there. Mr. Weedman has raised some questions on the other hand. But there, there's certainly a public perception out there that there is politics that goes on in the township. Good Lord, yes. But it does happen. And there's favoritism among employees. That perception is, is created in various ways, but there's, there's probably no better example than something I saw the other day. You know, when you make public records requests or go looking through public records, you can find all kinds of things. So I'm gonna see if I can share my screen here quickly. Um, here's a good example pasted this into Word. Let's see here. So uh, can you see this? This it's email is small, but you can see it. Can you make okay, it well, bigger? Well, I'll, I'll just point out, I'll, I'll zoom in. Uh, a former township employee, while still a township employee, but leaving, sent uh, instructions on challenges for the future in the township with some policy information, financial information and others. It went to a few people in the township, Mr. Kellams and one of the trustees, Mr. Weedman and some others, but not to Mr. LaBarbera, who was also a trustee, or to me, who had already been elected. Why is that? The position of administrator is supposed to be a nonpartisan when reporting equally to all of the trustees. That just feeds the perception that there's politics going on in various ways and that some trustees are cut out of other things by employees for whatever reason. We don't need that. We have a great staff. We have great employees. We don't want them to feel the pressure of having the politic if they don't want to do it, especially if they don't live in the township and don't really have any reason to care about what's going on in township politics. Others do live in the township. They've lived here a long time and have very vested interest in that. Mr. Kellams is a great longtime employee of the township who lives in the township and is a local precinct executive for something other than the Sunshine Party. But you know he's got a vested interest in all that too. So how can we make this work so there's an apolitical environment where other employees who don't really have any vested interest in this anyway, they don't live here, don't get drug into this. That's the challenge that faces us. This is my suggestion. There is no motion pending right now. We do have a proposed policy we've been discussing at great length here for a while. 
trial, Mr. Weidman has raised some questions that I think it's important for Mr. Desai to look into a little bit further. I'll ask you another question too. Can we exclude township residents who are employees from the policy constitutionally so that those who do have a vested interest in voting for the people have the ability to do it if that's something the law might require here, which would seem to eliminate any concerns about us getting sued. I can't imagine some outsider who lives in Mason is going to get all worked up about not being able to go campaign in Sycamore Township for me or Mr. Weidman or Mr. LaBarber or Mr. Porter or you know, some other guy named Doug who wants to run or whatever. Um, is that a legitimate thing we can do? And, and frankly, in looking at the language here, are we making sure that people who are already in office are able to campaign for themselves under this. Technically, we are employees of the township as well. Um, and I, I hadn't looked at it with a close eye as to that before, but I, th I think that's something to look into. I would suggest Mr. Desai research Mr. Weedman's concerns. I would urge Mr. Weedman to make your suggestions as to how can we accomplish these goals to make this an apolitical workplace so that you don't have to worry about me pressuring some employee to go campaign against you. How can we do this? How can we accomplish it? It sounds like you've gotten some legal advice on this yourself already. I know you're not an attorney and you've been very adept at reading these cases here. Um, so let's figure out how we can make this work so that we insulate all of our great employees and staffers from these political pressures that they might otherwise feel and communicate clearly to the public that we don't have a politicized township. We have a professional township with a great professional staff that does things for any residents, regardless of who they are, whether they're for the Sunshine Party or the Blue Rock Party or whatever it was or whatever else. Mr. Desai, could, could you move ahead with that? If, I will, sure. sir. And I went to my comment. I'm sorry, the dog is commenting, so I'm going to mute myself. I would just suggest that um, we can accomplish that very easily by adopting the first paragraph of this uh, uh, of this policy and uh, letting that letting that be the driving force. If we're not soliciting as trustees, as a fiscal officer, if we are not soliciting employees um, uh, in the workplace, that's a great start. And I think that. Um, uh, that doesn't preclude them then from exercising their own opinions and whether or not they want to work for, for somebody or not. I mean, we, we, uh, uh, I think that the paragraph number one helps to accomplish what we're trying to do. Mr. James and Mr. Desai put a lot of effort into this. They did a lot of research on this and, uh, I'd like to see this go forward. So what it is. Could I maybe suggest a compromise based on Mr. James' comments that perhaps um, it would be appropriate to move to adopt the first paragraph of the policy, which seems to embody a principle that everybody agrees on, and then allow me until the next meeting to research the issues that um, uh, Mr. Uh, Weedman and Mr. James have brought up regarding paragraphs two and three. I'm okay with that. I will move that we adopt the first paragraph of the political activities proposed clause here uh, while taking under advisement the remaining portions. For All right, so we have a motion and a second for Mr. Weedman. Any discussion? 
Hearing none, uh, Mr. LaBarbera. What we want to do is we want to rewrite that, that middle paragraph. Am I right, Mr. James, Mr. Desai? All, all we're voting on today is the first paragraph. And you're going to add these, the middle paragraph when you get it before us at the next meeting. Right. By the next meeting, I will research the issues that Mr. James and Mr. Weedman have brought forth. I've been so, researching them all these weeks. Okay. Uh, okay. Go ahead, Rob. Um, Mr. LaBarbera? Aye. Mr. James? Aye. Mr. Weedman? Aye. Uh, Mr. Warwick, uh, one, any, anything else, Mr. Warwick? Is there any update I want to ask on that Kugler Mill Trihealth Davis Kubicki project? Could you? Don't, I don't have any update. No. The other thing on my agenda was uh, a finance reporting item that I'd like to suggest we table. Mr. Porter and I are working on some uh, uh, numbers, and uh, uh, we just had, weren't able to spend enough time on it. So we'll come back to the board on those things later. Okay, and uh, Mr. Porter, will you be working with Mr. Warwick on that? Yes, um, Mr. Warwick and I, Mr. Warwick and I have been in conversation. Um, the next thing coming up, probably for timetable, is the uh, tax budget. It's a uh, required form that we um, that the trustees will vote on in the uh, second meeting in July. That will include the um, um, expenses for the past two years, plus actual expenses for the first six months and projected um, income and expenses for the second uh, six months. Um, I uh, thank um, administration and my office. We seem to be working together well, and uh, we'll have that uh, information for you. Um, well ahead of that second meeting. We have to wait for the uh, actual figures to come in through June, but hopefully in the early part of July, we'll have those figures available for the trustees and uh, we'll have a better handle on where our uh, revenue and expenses are uh, uh, shaking out due to this COVID uh, uh, public health emergency uh, as, as we've talked here today, some expenses are going down, but some revenues may be going down also because of people not working, et cetera. So we'll have a better handle on it once we have the figures for the first six months and we'll know whether we have to uh, uh, slow down on spending or whether we can maintain the uh, budget that we have for the year. Thank you. Can we clear up one financial thing on the record from the last meeting because I know um, there was some confusion about a bond in the last meeting and the interest rate on it. Um, Mr. Porter, I don't know if you wanted to comment on what the, the rate on that bond we were discussing is. Yeah, um, Mr. Warwick, uh, uh, last time was, uh, he was just looking at uh, the maximum that could be charged. Uh, he sent out a, a correction the next day, which I appreciated. The, the interest rate was more along the lines of 2.1%. And, um, I think you all got that, um, and that's more in line with what the market rate is for, um, uh, you know, treasury bonds and uh, the investments that the township can be involved in. So uh, that's been cleared up. Um, I, in fact, I anticipate the interest rates will be dropping uh, even further in uh, uh, in 
what we can receive from our investments and what we borrow money for. So the fact that uh, you gentlemen en enacted the callable provision on that bond, it's probably a good uh, good idea because we might be able to get it at uh, a substantially less lesser interest rate even than the 2.1 we're, we're paying now. Great, thanks. I just wanted to make sure we cleared that up on the record since we discussed it last time, so thanks. Mr. Warwick, uh, any uh, public comments to share from residents? I, I did not receive any. any. Any other comments for Mr. Warwick? Mr. James, Mr. Weedman? Nope. Skyler Miller, Sycamore Township Head of Zoning and Planning with uh, this report. Skyler? There we go. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, just, just very briefly, uh, we are going to hold a, uh, a Zoom meeting for an upcoming um, uh, VZA. Uh, we have one variance that, that needs to be reviewed um, within certain time, legal, legal time requirements. Uh, and then we do have some, some resolutions that are going to be uh, adopted as well, but those cases have already been approved. So uh, other than that, uh, uh, Trustee James, did you want to lead the the discussion about uh, conditions or did you want me to try and summarize uh well I, i'll ask preference? about it since I, I brought this up um and, and let me back up just a second also mr labarber had asked mr warwick i think about the tri health project was that right i, I some of you mm -hmm. may observe the uh the demolition of the old hauser building has ended now and they've actually replaced the berm on the uh, permanent landscaping buffer of the townships yes. there so they're no longer coming through there. So that was, that was good to see that they got that done. Um, the rest of that is still a, a bit up in the air right now, I think. Um, I, I'd ask that we add a discussion item here though about ensuring compliance with uh, zoning conditions for development projects that the township has put in place in the past, just to ensure we are following through on those things. And, and what instigated this, uh, there were a few things. Some residents uh, over behind the CIG project going up next to Jewish Hospital have been concerned about the excessive noise coming from the construction work there. It, it's made worse for them because so many people are at home due to the stay at home order now. And so they're hearing this noise all day long that they'd otherwise, some of them at least be off at work and, and not hearing. Um, the township put some express conditions in place as to that project, which were actually strict enough that it surprised me in one sense because we have an old noise ordinance in the township dating back to 1994, I think it is. But when we took on our own zoning and adopted our zoning code in later years, we put much harsher restrictions in place to the point that in the zoning code, at least, there is a 62 decibel limit for sound. Um, the resolution approving the CIG project in the end, after all the hearings and controversy, had many, many conditions in it. One of which was, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it was number 26. It actually expressly incorporated the section of our zoning code that has that 62 decibel limit within it. So residents have been asking about this and I'll let Schuyler uh, or Ms. Miller report on what's what's been happening there, but the township has been keeping an eye on that. The other thing that got my attention is I, I've seen uh, frequently in our approval resolutions, we put other conditions in there, like no cell towers on site, things like that. But we have one which is regularly put in about there being zero foot candle light spill at the property's edge, whatever that means. It sounds very important and very limiting. And yet I can still see light coming out from those properties after they're built. And I, 
I assume it doesn't mean they need to be a black hole sucking all light inside, but it's a condition we put on. And so I, I'm wondering, do we go back and measure for that sort of thing afterward to ensure compliance? Before you address that too, the, the third thing uh, that's come up, the Myers-Cooper project at the corner of Galbraith and Kenwood Roads, the, the remaining phase of that is nearly complete. The township put in some, some very specific landscaping requirements there. Uh, Mr. Weedman at the time, I think, called it the, the, the most extensive landscaping uh, um, requirements for opacity or opaqueness or something of the sort we've ever put in place. But residents are concerned because if you look back there now, there are essentially a few Charlie Brown Christmas trees there that you can see right through to the building. I know Mr. Miller has been looking into that as well, and there are some residents who are very concerned. So the, the point of all this was to ensure, first of all, that we are going back and making sure we follow up on these conditions we put in place, generally speaking, and that we have provisions in place to do that, and that if we don't, we put them in place. And then secondly, these specific things that residents have asked about, I wanted to get a report on those. So I'll shut up. Thank you. <laughs> You're good. Okay. So um, uh, I, I am following up on, uh, on, on these cases after they've been approved, uh, working with the developers uh, as they move forward. Um, when an activity on site is in conflict with uh, the, the conditions set by uh, Board of Trustees, um, there, there's a couple different ways that we can, we can address that. Um, you know, uh, I'm jumping around a little bit, but in the case of the uh, Sycamore Executive uh, Center 2, um, that condition specifically stated that a, a final approval will not be issued uh, until those conditions are met. So I am actively uh, working with the developer there. He understands that uh, we need to address the, the landscaping issue uh, that he has on site. Uh, he's willing to work with us, uh, you know, within reason. Um, so, um, you know, Deepak, that may be a conversation that you and I have, um, later on to, to try and help him resolve that and, uh, you know, see what makes, makes the most sense. Uh, but in that case, it's, it's not really a violation. It's, it's so much, uh, you know, he hasn't met the requirements to, to receive a final, uh, in the instance of CIG, uh, you know, we've went, we've went, uh, round and around with this. We are monitoring the site. We do have um, uh, sound meters that, that actually register decibel, um, a decibel reading for, um, you know, that we can, that we can use. A lot of our codes have to deal with, you know, mechanical sound. So uh, when you look at a site that is finished or at least partially finished, um, there's, there's outside equipment, there's, there's compressors for, you know, air conditioning units, refrigerators, um, you know, you know, uh, other other support equipment, you know, incidental to the to the use of the site, uh, generators, uh, things of that nature. Um, a lot of our a lot of our code is actually referencing uh, those those permanent mechanical uh, fixtures, and um, you know, I, I did work with uh, Mr. Desai on this. You know, I think the condition. Um, of the uh, of, of the resolution approving the the CIG uh, development it is is mostly referencing the, that mechanical equipment. Uh, with that being said, there's an opportunity here to do some, uh, you know, sh shall we say, you know, good neighbor, um, you know, resolution. Um, I'm hoping to uh, to work with Mr. Warwick and establish you know good dialogue with with the developers. You know, 
maybe, maybe there are some measures that can be put in place. Um, you know, unfortunately, construction um, sites are, are allowed. Um, there's, there's not really, um, you know, you know, additional sound sound deadening devices that you that you put on heavy machinery, um, and actually because the um, the 1994 resolution is still in effect, uh, it does actually um, make some allowances for um, uh, construction activities that are that are permitted by the township, uh, as well as setting you know time limits on um, on that construction activity. So. Um, we're pulling language from from multiple um, multiple reference points, um, but um, you know, I, on the whole, construction activity is, is is prohibited and permissible. So, but like I said, we will continue to work with that developer, and you know, hopefully, you know, find some relief for the the residents in that area. Uh, as far yes, question about that. So I do remember us having the conversation about going out and taking some uh, decibel readings to get an idea what the ambient decibel level was prior to construction. And I thought that was done, but I, I mean, I wasn't there, so I can't, I can't say for sure. But I think that gives us a, a more reasonable expectation as to what we can expect off that property, number one. Um, um, it's more, it's going to be difficult for us to do that today because we, as obviously we know there's limited traffic on the road, so it really wouldn't give us a true reading. But um, uh, if you can find those ambient uh, decibel readings, that'd be probably would be helpful, number one. And number two, um, uh, I would agree with you that uh, the condition, I believe it may have been number 26 in it the is. resolution, but I'm not positive. Um, uh, that pertain to mechanicals on the property. So it would be air conditioning units. If they had a generator, it would include that generator. I know we had the issue with Jewish Hospital where um, at one point in time when they put their new bigger generator in, we had a lot of issues. And um, uh, because it was, the noise was extensive. And so we made them buffer that, that generator to ensure that the people on Frolic across the street were not listening to that noise. So. Um, I believe that when we when we passed the resolution and condition 26 was in place, that had to do with the mechanicals at the completion of the project. As you know, it's impossible, it's impossible to monitor or to to regulate uh, construction equipment because let's face it, construction equipment is loud. There's nothing to do about it. Now we should, we can, and we do, and we definitely should enforce. Uh, the, the the hours of which they're operating and if they're violating those hours with the uh, noise resolution we should be going after them for that. absolutely um, and again we are continuing to monitor the site uh, Kevin our zoning inspector is actually um, periodically throughout the week he's going out and measuring um, at different locations um, you know of adjacent to the to the uh, subject property um, he also does put in some Saturday hours, uh, so he's he's checking on the weekends as well, see if there's any inconsistencies in in activity. Um, I have I have you, you told me about the um, um, the the baseline readings. Uh, I have not found those yet. <laughs> um, we have uh, several terabytes of, uh, of of data. I've I've done some basic searches for it. It's not associated with the um, 
the case file at this point. So if if we do have them, um, you know, I'll I, I will move them over. Um, Kevin did. Uh, we it, although it's it's probably not the the best uh, baseline to establish, but we actually did take some measurements um, of, of other areas um, along Kenwood Road. Uh, including the uh, intersection at Kenwood and Montgomery. Um, there are certainly spikes of sound on, on site. Uh, I know, Mr. James, um, you've gotten, you know, anywhere between, you know, 60 to 90 decibels uh, on site, I think is what you had. Is that correct? Yeah, I measured uh, an average of 74 mid-afternoon yeah. on a Saturday, I think, when there was work going on and at peaks of 94 or so at okay. times construction equipment moving there in the middle of the day also and yeah. a resident back there has been measuring as well and mm -hmm. has been finding similar ranges of sound yeah kevin kevin was getting uh mostly i think it was 69 and then the low 70s which is actually consistent with with a uh with, with the intersection at, at kenwood and montgomery road um that's not to say that that those spikes aren't um you know aren't real and, and, and an annoyance. Uh, we did also measure the construction sounds behind our office um, there on Kenwood Road. And those are those are easily in the 80s and 90s. Um, fortunately, that site is a little further away from the um, those residential properties behind us. Um, but, um, you know, they're, they're certainly, it's certainly a, a slightly louder um, uh, construction site than, than what we have at CIG. Um, so we are, we're trying to establish some kind of baseline. Um, hopefully we'll be able to, uh, to, to find those, um, those readings from the beginning of the project. Skyler, one of the reasons we want to look at that baseline was because uh, there were some concerns that 62 decibels, you know, if, if we had an ambient uh, baseline decibel reading of 65, it would be, we'd be hard pressed to meet that 62 in our uh, in our zoning resolution. So um, that was one of the reasons why we wanted to go back and look at that. And you might be able to help me. So um, uh, so Kevin has been doing doing some readings, and he was out at Montgomery and Kenwood Road, and he did Montgomery Kenwood Road was 77. So it was 77. So that in and of itself exceeded the. Uh, the decibel, the decibel allowance reading, uh, the, the, the maximum decibel readings that we allow in the township. And that was, I assume, since the uh, um, quarantine has been in place for everybody staying at home and there was, wasn't as much traffic. Is that correct? Uh, that's true. That was just, um, uh, those were taken on April 7th. Okay. So just last week. Which would lead me to the question about the realistic nature of, of 62 decibels in our zoning resolution. And I just want, maybe you ought to take a look at that and just kind of get some feedback, yeah. some feedback on that as well. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, again, if we're, if we're going back to, uh, you know, if, if you're trying to read all ambient noise, um, you know, car cars make certain sounds. I mean, a lawnmower is going to, to, to spike you up into the high seventies or even eighties. Um, you know, I, if if we if we look at our code and we realize that it's um, you know we're, we're trying to zero in on those permanent mechanical uh, sounds that you know um, are are incidental to, to larger um, you know larger commercial projects. So again, those compressors, those generators. Um, 
you know, there are, you know, acoustic screenings for those. There are mufflers, um, things of that nature that they can bring them down. So they're not adding to the ambient noise of the area. Uh, if we, if we look at it in, in that context, you know, uh, you know, 62 may be, may be desirable, maybe not. So it, it's certainly worth looking at. Uh, if, if we're looking at general sounds from a property, um, you know, if, you know, if we're, if we're looking to, you know, what, what's the trigger point for, you know, a, a civil citation, uh, or, or some kind of, um, you know, a nuisance violation, um, you know, 62 may not be, may not be the appropriate threshold. Let, let me ask a few questions also here. Uh, the That paragraph 26 in the approval resolution, I, I, I do note it, it reads in its entirety, all mechanical equipment must be screened both visually and acoustically. The determination for compliance will be made from 100 feet outside the property line. That's how it begins, but then it goes on. Township staff will monitor sound levels both before, during, and after construction using a sound pressure level meter to determine decibel levels meaning we did anticipate monitoring during construction of some yes. sort as well. I don't know if this was drafted as well as it should have been if it were intended to only uh, build baselines to measure against mechanical equipment later. But 62 decibels, yes, and maybe that is, I, I don't know where that number came from originally when it went in our zoning code. If it's something we need to look at, we, we may need to do that. We were in the process a couple of years ago of going through revising the zoning code anyway, and then it turned out we were working from a flawed red line document and the comparison the zoning commission was doing was off anyway. We, we need to get back to that project at some point too. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's a consideration, but question for Mr. Desai and are, are, you, are you still there, Mr. Desai? I see your video went out, but hopefully you are. Um, the, the resolution adopting our zoning code and taking on zoning for the township, I think was resolution 1998-1. Uh, there's an index of prior resolutions on our website, but not that resolution itself. I, I'd be curious to know the wording of that and whether Mr. Desai or Mr. Warwick perhaps, or Mr. Miller could look at that. Did it um, explicitly override or revoke the prior noise ordinance that we had from 94? or is it made to work in conjunction with it? It may have addressed it. I just don't know. If it didn't um, address it, presumably sure. the old I, I, don't, I don't want to speak for Mr. Desai. Uh, I, I can say that we've had some conversations about that. Um, I, I think the uh, our, uh, our, our zoning resolution and, and, and the updates to it uh, have been more specific than the, uh, the prior code, uh, the, the, the 94, resolution uh, is, is certainly broader than, than what we've um, addressed in, in zoning resolutions. Uh, so I, you know, uh, at least from those conversations, it's my understanding that the 1994 resolution is still in effect. Okay. If you could take a look at the resolution adopting, or there's Mr. Desai, if you could do that, I just, I just want to know, did we do anything that overrode the prior one or was it designed to work in concert together? Um, or did it supersede it in some way? That would be useful to know going forward because we're still featuring that old noise ordinance on our website if someone searches for noise ordinance. Um, and it's it's somewhat nonspecific, except that it does say, on the other hand, if you've got a permit to do something, you can do it. Uh, meaning if you have a construction permit, you can apparently make whatever noise you need to as long as you stay within the parameters of whatever the permit requires. So I think some clarity on that could be useful. Okay, anything else, uh, Skylar? 
Uh, I do have a resolution for you. Um, Mr. Miller, for... be, be, before you go there, um, oh. what Mr. James just mentioned about the noise ordinance is something I just wanted to mention to the trustees, not looking for an answer today. Uh, and it's something that uh, perhaps Mr. Ward could even um, uh, provide some input on. I'm wondering why in the township we don't have a code of ordinances for things like the 94 noise ordinance. Um, there are other ordinances out there for the township and it might behoove us rather than going and searching the township website to have an actual code of ordinances that's indexed and in capable contents so that um, you can actually put your finger on the various laws that we have pursuant to our home rule power uh, in effect uh, in the township. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, I do too. Excellent, excellent. Um, would it be all right if I work with Mr. Work on that? Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Yeah, please do. Okay, yes, thank sounds you. Good. Good idea. Do we need a motion as to that right now, or do you want to develop what it'll be and then we move to approval? Uh, yeah, I just want to, we'll just do some background work and then come back to something. Okay. Okay. Thank okay, you. Scott, thank you. Deepak uh, Schuyler, you have a resolution? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, so very briefly, this is um, a um, resolution providing for an authorizing removal of vegetation, garbage, refuse, and other debris, declaring a nuisance for the property located at 8109 Reading Road, Sycamore Township. Uh, this is a, a, unfortunately, this is a, a commercial property that's, that's not currently active. Uh, it's used uh, for um, you know, essentially dumping <laughs> in that area. Uh, the, the property owner does have a responsibility to, to secure the site um, and that's um, the, the property has been neglected. So uh, I, I don't necessarily want to blame the property owner for, for every piece of junk and debris on the site, but they, they do have a duty to, uh, to maintain that. So um, we have tried to work with them. We're not, um, not currently um, receiving a lot of feedback. Uh, so this is just kind of the next step uh, so that the, the township can make arrangements to have the property cleaned up. Motion to approve. Second. Order. Mr. LaBarbera. Aye. Mr. James. Aye. Mr. Weedman. Aye. I, I have one other question for Mr. Miller before we move on from him, if, if he was done with his part. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, and I had at least one resident ask me about this the other day. Um, summer is coming we don't know what the state of the stay-at-home orders will be and how that's going to affect people we don't know how that's going to affect area pools among other things and mm -hmm. swim clubs and whether they'll be able to open i had at least one resident ask me about putting a temporary pool in her backyard and she wasn't even meaning one of the semi-permanent uh, surface type pools, the raised ones that people might mm -hmm. put in and stay from year to year but rather just a large inflatable even and I, I looked briefly on as to what we require. And at least if it's an above ground pool, we require zoning approval. If it's an inflatable pool, I assume we don't, but can you address that and what people need to do and what costs they might face if they want to temporarily put their own pool in 
this summer, but get rid of it later because it's not a permanent structure. Sure. Um, above ground pools do require uh, a zoning permit. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't think the, uh, the zoning code, uh, zoning resolution uh, specifies the type of construction, you know, whether it's uh, inflatable versus, um, you know, uh, you know, rigid metal construction. I would recommend that those residents do apply for a, uh, a permit. Uh, the one thing that I'm going to be looking for, no matter how it's constructed, is that it's properly enclosed. Um, this is a this is a, a safety property liability issue. Uh, we do require a four foot fence around all pools, um, so that so that the uh, the property owner maintains control and access to the to the pool. If you're doing a three foot inflatable uh, pool, there's uh, there's 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 no four foot boundary between um, you know a, a small child uh, that might be going down the sidewalk and and that uh, you know that potential you know hazard. So um, I would encourage residents. It's a free permit. Um, they can do. We're actually because we're not requiring. Um, those smaller residential um, applications, they don't they don't have to go to county. Uh, we're we're accepting those online right now, and we can do the approvals electronically as well. Um, they they should submit a application site plan and show that it's being properly secured. Okay, but that was my next question. There's no cost yes. for them doing no it. cost. Could you put yeah. together something maybe to share out on social media about that? Because I have a feeling that's going to be a more common question as it gets warmer. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. We've been talking about that. Uh, the You bring up a, a, a great question with the pools, um, but fences, small sheds, um, you know, we're getting, uh, we're getting requests for um, driveway improvements with, with small retaining walls, all, all these permits that, that don't require, um, uh, Hamilton County review. Um, we're we're trying to streamline our process and and make those easier to um, uh, to obtain by residents. So uh, we do need to um, update our website and um, you know put the you know formalize those those procedures. Um, you know right now we're we're trying to work through those practices and see what makes the most sense. We're working with residents on a case by case basis. Um, so we, we'll firm those up in the near future, and we will put that out there for social media. Thanks, else, Mr. James. No, that's all. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to Fiscal Officer. Mr. Porter, do you have any items to share? Oh, I, I've already made my comments. Thank you. And uh, with trustees' comments, uh, Mr. Weaver. Uh, I don't have any at this time. Mr. James. Um, I don't have any others either at this time. Thanks. And I'll just add that uh, for the uh, latest on the COVID-19, uh, go to the front page of our website. You'll find a number of valuable links. Uh, this is evolving every day. And uh, again, I know you received the uh, 2020 uh, spring newsletter. Please remember that this went to print prior to Governor DeWine's COVID-19 orders to limit public interaction to slow the spread of the virus. So use common sense, stay safe, stay healthy. God bless you. Announcement changes. Uh, you can check our website. Of course, all of the trash bash. Tracy will get back to you later and reschedule a number of these events. But right now, everything's canceled for this month.
motion to adjourn. Motion to adjourn. Second. Mr. Porter. Mr. LaBarbera. Aye. Mr. James. Aye. Mr. Weedman. Everybody have a great day. You too. Thank you. Thank you. See you. 11.01, the time of dismissals.